If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and hold your place there. We have something important to discuss, and it's, as pastors sometimes say, it's family business that brings us together in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're talking today about restoration, which is not an easy thing to do in any arena. If you ever use the word restoration, what you're talking about is something that was once intact, once whole, that has somehow suffered damage and been harmed, and now a greater effort is needed since we were not able to preserve that precious thing. Now an even greater effort is needed to put it back in its original condition. You may have heard the name Steve Wynn. He's a extravagantly wealthy businessman. He owns the hotel, the casino and hotel, The Wynn, in Las Vegas. Back in 2006, Mr. Wynn decided to sell the centerpiece of his art collection, which hung in his casino. It was a Picasso painting valued at $139 million. He agreed to sell it for that price. Unfortunately, while giving a press conference about it, Mr. Wynn turned and awkwardly elbowed the painting and put his elbow through his $139 million painting. The repair cost $90,000. Because when you damage something that old and that precious, you need high technology and a great level of skill to see if you can put it back to its original condition. He suffered in that moment a catastrophic financial loss even after the report experts valued it not at $139 million but at $85 million. And he had to sue, he had to sue and then settle out of court with Lloyd's of London to see if he could recover the insured difference between those two valuations. Don't be too heartbroken. I'm sure it all worked out. <laughs> I'm told later he sold it for over $100 million, so this is not entirely a tragic story. <laughs> what is tragic, though, is when something precious is damaged and you wonder and worry in the moment of seeing the damage whether you'll ever get it back. Oil paintings in, that, in those kinds of amounts, of course, are extremely important, but relationships are even more so. And it's broken relationships that Paul is going to talk about in 2 Corinthians. It's his intent to talk to the Corinthians about restoring broken relationships between them, between Jesus, and between the Apostle Paul and the church. If you've been following along in our series of 2 Corinthians, we've now reached in the third sermon, the second chapter, you notice that the correspondence that the Apostle Paul, who preached Jesus everywhere he went, has everything to do with broken relationships with the Corinthian church. If you haven't been here in the series, Corinth is an ancient church in the modern-day city, in the modern-day nation of Greece. And relationships were fractured, frazzled, broken, damaged, it seems at times, beyond repair. Paul has presented the gospel to the Corinthians. He's told them that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the grave so that they could have eternal life. But though many of them became believers, they did not immediately surrender their old, wicked, famously immoral ways. 
The church was litigious, suing each other. The church was immoral, gross sexual sin in the church that was apparently not only covered up, but celebrated by factions within the church. They were fractious and divisive. Worst of all, they had come to believe, at least some of them, that Paul himself was a phony. They said that all of his suffering was the hallmark of someone who wasn't pleasing to God. If you read the entire correspondence, even though we're reading somebody else's mail, it becomes very apparent that some of them are insinuating that the offering that Paul is receiving from churches across the Roman Empire to take back to Jerusalem, which he says is intended to alleviate the poor, suffering Jewish Christians that have come under persecution and lost their ability to not starve together, that's how hard it had gotten to be a Christian in Jerusalem if you were a Jew. His critics said, he's not collecting money for the poor at all. He's going to take some of that for himself. And the church, of course, fractured in a lot of different places. How do you restore, not a painting, but how do you restore a church if somebody's accusing the leadership of being dishonest, self-serving, if someone on the deacon team, for instance, is rumored to be sleeping with someone who's not his wife, or tyrannical and harsh, not a servant at all, but someone who behaves like a tyrant, if church families are at odds, and no longer gathering to worship Christ, but rather to get at each other's throats. How do you bring that together? Well, the answer in the United States, primarily in 21st century American culture, is that you don't really work very hard at bringing those things back together and effecting a restoration. It's all too easy to go to the church down the street. I'm going to show you, and when I talk about the 21st century American church, please understand I'm referring to influences, temptations, and pressures in my own life. I'm a 21st century American, same as you. But I think when you look at the plain teaching of Jesus and compare it with the plain teaching of Paul dealing with these problems in the Corinthian church, what you're going to find out is that we in the United States, especially... With the advent of the internet where every church can present itself in your living room instantly with quality that you might find easier on the eye than being there in person, it's easier just to go to another church and we've turned the church more into a product to be consumed rather than a family to be reconciled. But it's not what Jesus had in mind at all. It's a deviation, it's a deformation of what Jesus intended because what Jesus intended to do by dying on the cross and rising from the dead was not only to save individuals but to form those individuals into local assemblies, congregations which he himself calls his body. And it's much more than a metaphor. A body means a unified whole made up of many different parts but that functions together. As you sit there and listen and process what I'm telling you, and as I stand here and use pretty much my entire body to deliver this message, if even one part of my body suddenly gives out, we're going to have a problem. If my left knee says, you know, he's got a little chunky over the last several years, and I'm tired, and he stands there for altogether too long, if my left knee says, that's it, I'm out, I quit, I'm going to go down like a ton of bricks, you're going to have the scare of your life, and we're going to have a crisis. 
in the American church when a member goes missing. We think of it more as someone who used to shop at Walmart and now prefers Target. And don't give it much more thought than that. It's not what Jesus intended. Jesus actually gave us very clear directions of what to do when there's serious sin in his body. How should our church, how should Cross Point Church deal with serious sin among us? And note every word, it's carefully chosen. We're talking about serious sin, the kind that breaks relationships. We're not talking about every kind of sin because we would never stop dealing with it because we all sin every day. Jesus has in mind, as I'm about to read to you, the kind of sin that sets people apart, that begins to divide his body. And his directions, though seldom followed, are actually really clear. Matthew 18, it's printed on your bulletin. I'd love for you to follow along there with me. Then we're going to watch Paul apply this to the church in Corinth. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to, what's it say? The church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Are those compliments in the days of Jesus? Not at all. In other words, Jesus said, if three tries with more and more people gathered around these two combatants does not bring the sinning person back into the fold, restored to me and restored to the congregation, you can safely consider that he doesn't know Christ at all. It's a serious matter. And then he says something that you... I think you're going to discover something about the verse that follows that I'm about to read to you. I think you're about to discover that you've heard it out of context probably most of your life. Truly, I say to you, I'm in verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How many have heard verse 20? How many of you have quoted it? Did you realize that Jesus is talking about making that promise specifically in the context of a gathered church that has come together to bring people back to reconciliation? We've lifted that, in my hearing, almost completely out of context. It is true that Jesus is always with us. He promised at the end of this gospel that he would not leave us or forsake us, that he would be with us every day to the end of the age. And sometimes when we have a Bible study and not many people show up, and you've got two people with an open Bible, somebody says, well, you know, Jesus said if two or three are gathered in his name, he's there among us, and here we are. And that's all true. But the context, the promise he makes specifically to be gathered 
where people have come together in his name has to do with the whole body coming together to deal with the kind of sin that has broken first a personal relationship and then more relationships as the sinner refuses to listen and then a person who has defied the entire church. That's why Jesus talks about earlier things being bound and loosed in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you gather to reconcile, to restore people back into fellowship with me, I'll be there. And I will empower that meeting, and I will make sure that what you decide under my guidance and in my presence is agreed with in heaven. In other words, when churches come together, when individuals come together, when small groups come together to try to reason and plead and pray and discuss with people who have had their relationship fractured by sin, Jesus takes a deep interest in it, promising his presence and his power and promising to make sure that what is done in his name on earth is reflected in glory. It's a much bigger deal than any of us probably have ever considered. And notice the progression. It's a sin between one person and another. The offended person goes and, if you look with me again, please, in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If that doesn't work, bring a couple of witnesses. And I don't believe, based on the context, that these are witnesses to the sin. These are witnesses to the ongoing discussion. These are wise, godly people who were brought in to watch these two see if they can reconcile. And if those two or three witnesses are not heeded, then the entire church is summoned with Jesus promising his presence. And this scary process, this commandment from Jesus goes by the scary term of church discipline. And people hear that and freak out. You ever been in a church fight? It's the ugliest kind of fight there is. Here's why. If both people know the lingo, let's assume they're both Christians, they both know the language of Scripture, they both claim to be on the side of Christ. They both claim to be righteous. One client, one side, or both claim to be wronged against the wishes of Christ. This process of restoration and reconciliation is called church discipline. And by the way, this is one reason we go straight through books in our church. I'm not aiming at anybody. By God's grace, I'm not addressing a problem that we currently have. We've had troubles in the past. Our church has been here since 1964. I've been here nearly 18 years. Of course, we've had our troubles. But for years now, we've had a very sweet, peaceful, healthy, growing, loving congregation. So I'm not talking to you about something that we need to deal with right now. I'm telling you what Jesus said about it so that, God forbid, it's ever necessary again, we'll know how to act and we'll act like Christians and we'll obey him because we should never be afraid to obey Jesus. Whatever Jesus has told us in any arena, the family, our lives, our work, our friendships, our hobbies, the way we use our time, the way we use our bodies... 
however countercultural or contrary or frightening present-day thinking may make us feel that the instructions of Jesus are, we should never be afraid to obey him. People are scared by the concept of church discipline because the concept can be abused. Absolutely. But the concept can be abused, but abuse of the instructions of Jesus is not obedience to Jesus. Everything that Jesus has done, every gift that God has given can be perverted, can be corrupted, can be misused. Let me give you a couple for instances. Marriage and family are a gift from God. Agreed? Can it be misused and abused? In the most horrendous ways. Parenting is the great privilege of my life. It's a great, deep, sacred honor. I have to be vigilant every day not to be neglectful, not to be abusive, not to be harsh, not to be too indulgent. I can misuse everything that Jesus ever gave me. So the fact that the process of church discipline can be abused does not mean it should be ignored. It just means that it should be done properly. It should be done the way Jesus told us to do it, in other words. And this is beyond the scope of this immediate text, but let me just tell you from personal experience and observation, being a pastor for quite a while now, let me tell you three ways in which church discipline is often abused. One is there's favoritism. In other words, if a particular person, and particularly, frankly, the senior pastor, if he's the one that's being accused or he's the one being, uh, that's actually behaving bad, badly in public, we can just ignore that because he's the pastor and he has the mic and he's a little bit scary. We're just going to leave him alone. That's favoritism and it's horrible. The other abuse, which the Corinthians got themselves into, is to be too harsh. Once we get to 2 Corinthians in just a few more minutes, you're going to see that they rose up in indignation against this person that was accusing Paul. They defended Paul. They defended Paul's honor. They were rightfully on the side of truth and on the side of Jesus, but they became so harsh that first the church began by not dealing with any sins, and then they became so harsh that they cast him out into the back 40 and said, never come back under any conditions. You see, everything that Jesus has told us to do is like walking down a path and there's going to be a ditch on either side. And we don't want to leap from ditch to ditch. We just want to walk down the road with Jesus. The third and probably the most common way to abuse church discipline is what a friend of mine calls sin sniffing. What is sin sniffing? That is his particular term for the kind of congregation that is filled with a few self-righteous people who make it their job to tell everybody else where they're wrong about anything and everything, whether that thing can be found in the Bible or not. They are continually calling for discipline against people who may simply see things differently well within the bounds of Christian freedom. As a friend of mine joked in Bible college before we knew the term sin-sniffing, he said some of these brothers would break fellowship over the color of your socks. That's sin-sniffing. Now, the intent of church discipline, as you can see from Jesus' careful step-by-step -step instruction, is always the same. It's to restore a sinning Christian to fellowship with Jesus and to fellowship with the church, this is important, 
involving as few people as possible. The intent is never to destroy. The intent is never to do further harm. The intent is always to restore someone whose serious sin has led them far from Christ and put them at odds with the church to restore them first to Christ, then to the fellowship of Christ's body, and the intent always is to involve as few people as possible. I bet if I asked some of you about your church hurt and your church fights, at least part of it would have to be with the person who hears about a very private and painful problem and tells, for the purposes of prayer, everybody. You met this person? And now we've got Facebook, so you can tell the whole world, including a few, a few people who don't even know any of, the, any of the people involved. A friend of mine calls it vague booking. We really need to pray for pastors today. Just say that your preacher did a bad job on Sunday. It's okay. We don't have to pray for pastors everywhere. Your pastor blew it. You hate him now. It's okay. Just say so. No, you shouldn't say so. Not on Facebook. That's not helpful. The intent is to restore them as quickly as possible, involving as few people as possible, always with a spirit of gentleness, as I'm going to show you. In simple terms, discipline is simply a part of discipleship. If you claim to be a Christian, your claim is that you are a disciple of Jesus. And no one can be discipled to anyone without someone being in charge. If you are going to grow to be more like Christ and less like your old sinful self, somebody has to be there to tell you when you're right and when you're wrong. Christ is there himself, personally, of course, but for his own reasons, Christ has constituted the church, that literally means the assembly, the gathered congregation, which he lovingly calls his own body. And when we are functioning well, we are here not only in alignment with him, but in alignment with each other. And that discipline, which involves encouragement as well as correction, is always going to be a necessary part of discipleship. Hold your place in 2 Corinthians and go a few pages further ahead with me to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And listen to Paul's explanation to a group of churches in the Roman province of Galatia. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul wrote, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, let me explain the language there to you. You'll notice it says someone is caught. The word picture here is that someone is trying to get away from sin, but they get run down and tackled from behind. It wasn't willful, it wasn't rebellious, it wasn't rogue in Paul's language. It is someone who was running the race and got dragged down by sin. Notice how Paul says we're to deal with that person. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, what's it say? Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Because sometimes when you try to restore somebody else, you discover the darkness of your own heart. Your own temptations come to the surface. That's why what Paul has to tell us now in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 is so important. 
And if I may, as your senior pastor is one of the people who are privileged here to serve and to lead and shepherd this congregation, and I'm, not, I'm just one of them, you need to know this in case it ever becomes necessary, as it has been in the past. And it's been a lot of years since such a thing was necessary, but criticism, sin, scandal, it's always possible. If Paul could be criticized, I certainly can be. And I have been. I can be falsely accused and I can also sin. If I sin in such a way that disqualifies me from this pulpit, you'll have a congregational obligation to get rid of me. Because forgiven and qualified are not the same thing. You can be fully forgiven by Jesus and not yet qualified by Jesus to do a particular thing that Jesus has called you to do. There's a lot on the line, in other words. And this is a good time to talk about it because we don't need to talk about it. We're digging the well before we're thirsty. We're taking instruction from Jesus should darker, harder days come upon us. Here's how we deal with sin, serious sin in our church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Remember, Paul here is being humble. He's been accused of being, if not a false teacher, certainly not a good one. And not an honest man who's actually earned his own way and refused from the Corinthians alone the financial support that others gave him and that every other apostle received. Paul actually went far beyond what was required, which is why it was so painful that this church of all churches was accusing him of being rotten and selfish and money-grubbing and out of the favor of God. Paul humbly says, listen, the damage that was done, the pain that was dealt, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. So the first thing we need to remember in the delicate art of restoration, of dealing with serious sin in our church is this, sin harms everyone in our community. So we should take it seriously. There's the ditches on either side of the road again. One ditch is we ignore it. Everybody sins. That's just normal. That's the way things go. No. If the sin is serious, if relationships are fractured, if the church is divided, Paul says the person who attacked me in public, the person who attacked my character, he didn't really bring that much pain to my life. He did that to all of you. Sin harms everyone in this body. Flip back a few pages with me to 1 Corinthians 12 and listen to Paul talk about the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's talking about the way the members should care for one another and support one another. And he says in verse 25, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, what's it say? All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
We have to take our unity seriously. This is not a collection of customers. We're a community. This isn't a matter of preferential best deal in town kind of choices. No, this same chapter says that Jesus places the members of the body where he wants them. And the picture of the body is that it works harmoniously, that it works together, that it's mutually supportive the way all of our bodies are functioning right now so that you can sit there and understand and I can stand here and talk. And when one of those members begins to suffer, Paul says the rest of the body rallies to bring it back in together. The temptation in the church is one member goes rogue, one member rebels against the rest of the body, one member starts harming the rest of the body, and the, body, and the church says, eh, that's okay. No, it's a crisis. So we have to take that harm to the community seriously. We should deal with it together. Number two, Read with me in verse 7. Back in 2 Corinthians, now read with me in verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What seems to have happened here after they receive Paul's letter setting them straight, the vast majority of the church listened. They rallied. They dealt to the one who was bringing, they dealt with the one who was bringing division. So here's Paul's counsel. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your, what's it say? Your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of who? Of Christ. Jesus showed up when you had that meeting. You dealt with him. He's sorry now. Let him come home. Don't be so harsh. Don't let him feel that there's no hope. He sinned, he recognized it, he said so publicly. Throw the doors wide open. Let your brother come home and be reconciled to the body. Jesus knows all about this. I know all about this. Jesus has forgiven him. I have forgiven him. You make sure you forgive him, you comfort him, and you affirm your love for him. I asked how many had been in a church fight, and I saw a ripple go across most of the room. I wonder if you've ever been part of a church restoration. Those aren't nearly as common. But like broken bones, sometimes where if there has been great pain, the mend is stronger. That's what Jesus has in mind because number two, our goal is restoration, not vengeance or vindication. This isn't personal against you. It's ultimately personal with Jesus and the rest of his body. We're not out to be vindicated. We're out to restore the person in a spirit of gentleness so that they can continue their journey with Christ along with us. And then, finally, very importantly, in verse 11, Paul's going to escalate the importance of this in a verse that you may have missed in earlier readings. I'll read from verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. 
so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Third thought regarding how we deal with sin in our church, we remember always that when we fail to obey Jesus here, we are in that moment outsmarted by Satan. You see, the church belongs to Christ. He is its head. He is its life. But Satan hates everything that Jesus loves. And Satan has his own designs on the body of Christ. When sin in the family is ignored, the design of Satan is being followed. When sin is dealt with preferentially to favor some over others, the design of Satan is being followed. When sin is dealt with so harshly that people are robbed of the hope that Jesus died to give them, the design of Satan, not the design of Christ, is being followed. The design of Christ is to build his body here on earth in local ordinary congregations like ours where people have a genuine relationship with Jesus and a genuine life-giving relationship with one another. Not because it's a version of the Kiwanis Club with Bibles, but because it's a community united and birthed by the life of Christ himself that we show in the way we love one another, as Jesus said, that we really are his disciples. And if we're going to maintain those relationships and live with each other and live for him for life, obviously we're going to have to reconcile. We're going to do so promptly and gently and lovingly, aiming always at restoration, not at vengeance, not at retribution, not at personal vindication, because if we fail to obey Jesus on this point, at that moment, Satan outsmarts us. And his design, rather than the design of Christ, is followed. Simply put, cross point, a well-disciplined church is obedient to Jesus. And a well-disciplined church is not only obedient to him, it's good for all of us. Let's pray together. If you're a Christian this morning, can I just ask you in prayer privately to affirm again your love for Christ and His body? This has very obviously been a sermon just for our congregation. good, wise, biblical instructions from Jesus and Paul telling us how to deal with problems that by the grace of God we presently don't have, at least not very many. But let's be ready to obey Him when the need arises. Let's commit to love Him and love each other so that we don't have to deal with this very often. And when we do, we are quickly reconciled. Let's pray.